Praise God for the opportunity to sing the gospel together as a family on Sunday morning. It's one of the most beautiful things we can do. Before we go to the Lord and his word, I'd like to invite you to pray with me. And then we'll open up the good book to find the Savior. Jesus, thank you that it is by your strength that we are grown, sustained, preserved, and loved. Thank you for your mercy and your affection for your bride. Thank you for the way that you look at us and never take away your love. Father, you're amazing. Oh God, I pray that by your own strength, you would prove yourself to be strong and visit us as we open up your word to find Jesus. We need you, Lord. We need you to keep us more than we know. And so we look to you and we ask that you would give us a special blessing during this time to see Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, my two boys, uh, JJ and Hudson, have been uh, playing baseball at uh, Mountain Park Park this season. It's been an absolute blast for those little stinkers to um, get up on the field and, and do it. Uh, last night, I'm sorry, last Sunday, um, I was uh, sitting there on the benches watching one of JJ's games, and uh, the other team was up to bat. JJ's team was out in the field, and this little boy Decked out to the nines, Nike dry fit, glasses, batting gloves, and the bat in hand, walks up to home plate to hit the ball. He gets ready, he swings three times, and he misses three times. And uh, in JJ's league, after you swing and miss three times, you get three strikes, you get a chance to hit off the tee twice. And so um, out came the tee and as the tee came out, off came his dad off the bleachers from behind the dugout and stood behind home plate. And um, as the, the boy's father stood there in this really stern voice, um, he called out to his son and said, son, stop with all the stupid stuff. And um, I, um, I watched that little boy hear the words of his father and nervousness strike his bones. He got nervous after he heard his dad's voice. Um, then his dad said to him, hit the ball. You got two tries. And so the little boy swung the first time, missed. His dad then called out to him and said, you got one more chance, son, and then you're out. And the boy reared back to hit the ball, and then he swung and missed again. And then his dad stood there with his arms crossed with this type of glare on his face that he aimed toward his son. And I watched his son look at the face of his dad. And there, there was this really weird mix in his glare of disapproval and shame. And I watched that little boy seek the affirmation of his father in his face and he didn't get it. And so I watched him hang his head and walk his way back to the dugout. Little boy was crushed. It was almost as if he looked lifeless carrying the weight of his father's shame to the dugout based on his poor performance. There was another dad out by the third base um, uh, line who did this three times to his son. After all, three up, three times up to bat. 
And I watched these little children um, because of their father's conditional acceptance of them, the whole game tote the line of uncertainty based on whether or not if they can do well. Um, why, would, why would I start by telling you this story? Well, because often our experience with our fathers or parental figures growing up, those who have raised us, whether or not we know it, have affected us in such a way that we tend to bring these experiences into our relationship with God and sometimes project things like this on his character. When does this happen? Well, pretty much always, but um, especially when you and I sin and or mess up, when we fail to meet the mark. When you and I sin or fail to meet the mark, we have this strong temptation or urge inside us to think that God is somewhere up in heaven waving his finger of disapproval and anger or irritable shame saying, you got it wrong. How could you? And so this morning, in light of our text and also in light of this idea here, what I'd like to do is show you the gospel, which is have the approval of God the Father towards us through his son, Jesus Christ, is perfect and never changes. In other words, for those of us who believe upon Christ, the promise is, is, is that through him, God the Father is never disappointed with you. It's not possible. James, are you sure about that? Be careful. I am sure and I am being careful. This morning, I want to show you that if your faith is in Christ, that by faith you have been made one with, with Christ, in union with Christ, and for God to be disappointed with you would mean for God to be disappointed with Christ, and that's not possible, and since that's not possible, you always at every time and moment can rest fully assured that God the Father through Christ the Son loves you, delights in you, accepts you, dotes over you. You are indeed the apple of his eye. I'd like to unpack this idea together and explore it further in our text this morning. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open. We are in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 6, if you're following along and taking notes, you'll see there we're asking the question, what is God like when we sin? What is God like when we sin? I'd like to show you three things. Number one, I'd like to show you Christ's advocacy. Number two, I'd like to show you the Father's love. And number three, I'd like to show you our responsibility in light of it. Christ's advocacy, the Father's love, our responsibility. We're going to begin our time by reading the text up front. John writes these words. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. 
Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We are privileged to read the word of God this morning. This indeed is that. Right now we're moving to point number one, and I'd like to show you Christ's advocacy. Well, um, in our study together last week, one of the the major things that we spent time uh, thinking about was how sinless perfection in the light of a Christian is actually an impossible thing to attain. John, if if you remember in, in, in chapter one, verse 10, said these words, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so as John begins here, he is responding to this fallen condition factor of our depraved nature, the inevitability of sin. And the way that he responds here um, puts on display for us a, a critical gospel pattern. And what I want for us to first and foremost see here is John's intentional and direct movement from this idea of sin to Christ himself. If you look there, he says this, My little children, in other words, he's saying to those of you who are in the church, whom I love and am seeking to mentor in this gospel by faith as an apostle, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In order for me to reveal to you what John is doing here, let me, let me talk to you a little bit about what he's not doing. What doesn't John do here after speaking about someone messing up or falling into sin? Here's the answer. Tell them to try harder. Tell them to do better. Tell them to vow to themselves never to do it again. No, um, John doesn't say any of this. Neither does John tell them to strike a convincing bargain with God for mercy based on merit and the previous track record. In other words, tell God how great you've been doing and how long it's been since you've last fallen into this specific sin. Nope. Rather, the first thing that John says above and beyond all else to this church after acknowledging the presence and also practice of sin is turn to Christ. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. What John is doing here is providing the answer to this question. After you sin and find yourself in a bad place before God, in the place that you told yourself you don't want to be in, how do you get yourself out? So I want to really actually ask you that question here this morning. After you sin, and find yourself in the thing that you're told yourself and God that you would no longer do, in the place that you would really, really not want to be, how do you, as a Christian, seek to get yourself out? I know we all just read the right answer, and the immediate response is Christ Jesus. Praise God, that is the right answer. But if we haven't yet read this text this morning, and your soul had not yet been reminded of the true, simple, yet powerful, life-changing gospel, think about, in your daily struggle with the normal sins and vices that you are prone to struggle over and fall into, 
What do you tend to use and or gravitate towards to lift yourself up out of the spiritual pit? Um, after your sin, do you say to yourself, well, I, I already have gone this far. Might as well keep going. Maybe that's an action um, attitude or train of thought. Or maybe one of your temptations is to cope with your guilt and shame through binging and technology in order to numb yourself from the reality, the present reality of spiritual condition. Or maybe it's neither of those things. Maybe it's condemning yourself for minutes, hours, days, or weeks. To the point of exhausting yourself so time heals it and eventually brings you back to God. You see, after we sin and do the things that we wish we hadn't and find ourselves in the places that we don't want to be, do you want to know what the natural inclination of the human heart for every person is? It is in one way or another to get ourselves out by our own strength and effort. And um, if it isn't one of the things that I've ever mentioned already in coping with sin, one of your temptations probably is by trying to do better or try harder. Like picking up more spiritual responsibility and weight in front of God, showing him how much you can lift, and then him being pressed by what you can do for him. To prove to God how strong we can be and how sorrowful we are in order to merit his favor. But let me just say that none of these things are the gospel pathway that God has paid for you and I to travel down after we sin in order to find grace. What is it then? How and what is the only way after sin to stay in right standing, in position, and status before God? Believing in Jesus. It's actually that simple. That's it. By faith, believing upon his effective role and status before God on your behalf. If, if, if you look there in verse 2, um, John is actually reminding us of this. He's showing us who and what role Christ plays for God's people in their fight and struggle against sin. Look there in verse 2, he names Jesus the, the righteous advocate. What does that even mean? Well, in order for us to understand this, I'd like to look at each word individually. First is this idea of righteousness. I often use this uh, website called gotquestions.org. Um, it, it answers in many ways both simple and challenging biblical questions. If you've never used it before, I recommend it to you. Gotquestions.org concerning the idea of righteousness said this. The Greek New Testament word for righteousness primarily describes conduct in relation to others, especially with regards to the rights of others in business, legal matters, and beginning with relationship to God. Righteousness is contrasted with wickedness, the conduct of the one who out of gross self-centeredness neither reveres God nor respects man. The Bible describes the righteous person as just or right, holding to God and trusting in him. The scriptured standards of righteousness are God's very own perfection in every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, and every word. Thus, 
righteousness refers to a type of being that which is morally just or right, something of great virtue and perfection. And so this is what John is calling Jesus, the one who is not only perfectly moral, but who being the Son of God shares his very own nature and essence. He is the maker of the law and also the one man that lived on earth who perfectly upheld and fulfilled it. Jesus himself is God's very own perfection in every way. And so after stating this one word, he then pairs it with this idea of advocacy. If you look there, you'll see it in verse 2. As you know, an advocate um, is a person who comes to someone's aid, someone who pleads someone's case before a judge on behalf of another. The role of an advocate is to offer counsel, support, and or strength and intercede for the one in whom they represent when necessary. And so this is what John is doing. He's painting for this church a legal picture within a courtroom setting with three people, or persons, I should say, God the Father, Christ the Son, and you, me. And we talk about this all the time. We talk about the idea of sin, how we as sinners break God's holy law, and how it is God's law that pronounces us guilty on all accounts. And you know this, I know this, and after you and I sin, we end up in the low pit, end up condemning ourselves. Why? Because we know that the just punishment for sin is condemnation resulting in hell. So this is what Satan does after we sin. He capitalizes on our sin and fallen nature, seeks to convey lies to us, and feeds us lies of condemnation, guilt, and shame, and takes those ideas to see if we can project those upon God's character. But here, John reminds us of the gospel, which is the fact that we have an advocate. And so what ends up happening after um, we sin in heaven is Jesus steps in between us and the Father to plead our case, and his pleading isn't just any pleading, but a righteous pleading, a perfect pleading, as one in whom the God the Father loves and is pleased with. And guess what happens when he pleads? The Father hears him. And so the conversation probably goes something like this. Jesus looks at us in heaven after we sinned. He looks at the Father and says, Father, um, this man, this woman has failed you. He or she has done it again, violated your commandments against your holy law. He or she stands guilty as charged. But I'm here to remind you that I have satisfied your demands of justice through my sin sacrifice on the cross. And so I am standing here in my appointed position as your righteous son who has acted on their behalf with my shed blood according to your will and power to save. Thus, I am pleading their case that you, Father, would be merciful through me. Look at my payment, look at my work, look at my perfection, hear me, and God the Father being fully pleased, delighting in his son. You know what he says? Not guilty. The verdict? Mercy. Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 says this. For this reason, God has exalted Christ 
and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Acts chapter 5. He, Jesus, is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as Savior to grant repentance to his people and also the forgiveness of sin. In, um, in the book of Revelation chapter 5, John saw Jesus as the only one in heaven who is worthy to open up the scroll of God's wisdom and break its seals. No one in heaven or on earth had the ability to do it but Christ. And so then he looked and John saw Jesus as a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And then when Jesus took the scroll and held it in his hands, John said that all of heaven, as he held the scroll, sang a song. And the song was this, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. And then John said when he looked, he heard around the throne living creatures and elders and voices of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands loudly saying this, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then every creature in heaven on earth and under earth and in the sea all of them cried aloud and said to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And then all of heaven fell down and worshiped the king. God has appointed Christ to the highest position of exaltation and glory in heaven because of who he is and what he's done. And now he, our righteous advocate, makes petitions before us presented to the Father. And thus we know without a shadow of a doubt that his prayers are not only heard, but they are effective. You see, true Christians, um, they don't make false claims about being sinless or perfect. True Christians care deeply about their sin, know that it is an offense to God. But then after stumbling or messing up in sin, instead of turning to self and vowing to try harder for God, turns to Christ instead as the righteous advocate, knowing that he alone saves. So I want to give you an example of what this looks like and sounds like to repent. You don't have to do or say exactly these words, but I want to give you an example. Maybe this would be helpful. Next time you fall in, you could say it in your own words. This is usually what I do after I do the thing I tell myself I'll not do again. I say, um, God, I did it again. And I'm ashamed. And you're holy, and that makes me intimidated of you because I know your call for me is holiness. And so I'm, um, I'm, I'm scared to approach you, and I feel like you're far and distant. Satan's telling me that. Um, but I just want to confess something to you, God, that as hard as I try to do good or do better, my words can never avail. No matter how hard I try for you, God, it's never enough. I end up falling in sin. Thus, I need you to save me. Would you please save me? I believe Christ died and rose, and it is you, Jesus, who are in heaven. So thus, you, Jesus, as my righteous advocate, would you plead my case and cover me in your blood so to make petitions and prayers to God so that I can receive mercy? 
And there's a lot of things that happen in my head and heart, a lot of lies that we have to rebuke as Christians and proclaim the gospel over us. But the scripture says, you know what God says after every time we pray like that? Forgiven. Every single time. The scriptures say that God says, of course I will. I love to forgive. I delight in extending to my people mercy. The work of my son is enough. You see, this is why Jesus is so important for us because he guarantees forgiveness and a secure ongoing grace from God as we follow him as imperfect beings. Amen? Amen. Well, that was point number one, the um, Christ advocacy. I'd like to show you now also the driving force behind it, which is um, the Father's love. As if the, the gospel isn't sweet enough, as it is in the first point, uh, John here uh, moves on and, uh, in his writing to give us even more hope. And if you look there in verse 2, this is what he says. He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole, the whole entire world. I'm going to get to the, um, the second half of this verse in, in a moment in our concluding time. But I, want to, I just want to focus here for a second on, on this word that John uses, propitiation. It's a big word, um, but most simply translated, propitiation means sin sacrifice or atoning sacrifice. And so John is saying Jesus is the sin sacrifice or atoning sacrifice for our sin. And it's really interesting that he would use this word propitiation here because historically um, this word was used um, in ancient pagan writings to refer to the appeasement of angry gods. If you ever um, had, a, have, had a relationship um, with someone who's, um, who doubts the faith or is skeptical to the faith, uh, one of the questions that you might have heard before is exactly this. Oftentimes people say, hey, how can you... Um, say you love or, or believe in the God of the Bible when, when throughout the course of history he has proven to be a hothead? How can you say um, or see all his wrath displayed in the scriptures and possibly say that he is loving and merciful? I mean, aside even from the Old Testament, look at the New Testament. Look at the death of Christ. What kind of father is that to send his son to die? These are amazing questions, and we should invite these type of questions from our non-Christian friends into our lives and answer them with respect and grace. They deserve an answer. You see, at first, when, when, when one sees the wrath of God laid on Christ in his death, it, it seems as if it is a case of cosmic child abuse. But not only is this a misunderstanding of God's character, but it is also a misunderstanding of his being. What do I mean? I mean that our God is one in essence and three in persons. And because there is only one divine essence and each person of the Trinity shares in all that is God, thus the Christian interpretation of Christ and the cross is not a picture of God the Father punishing an innocent third party for sins, but it is a picture of God himself revealed in the second person of the Trinity taking upon himself the wrath that was due to us. And yes, this concept of, of atonement in every way includes wrath. But, but, but God's wrath in the Bible is not illogical, nor is it unreasoned or 
invalid. His wrath in the scripture is on sin and evil and injustice. And some secular scholars look at this and say, no way, this can't be true. God is an angry God. Not a, uh, God is not an angry God. He is a gracious and loving God. Yes, he is a gracious and loving God, but he is also perfectly just and true. Someone had to pay the penalty that was due for God's mercy to be just. And so we have Christ. Okay, Christ did it, but, but God still killed Christ. No, he didn't. Jesus willingly went to the cross in free obedience to the Father's saving will for humanity in all of its rebellion. And it was humanity's rebellion, our sin, that killed Jesus. And God the Father's love provoked his Son to do this. This is what keeps God perfectly just and merciful all at the same time. One man named David Jackman said this, We as human beings... Instinctively know that this has to be the way. We do not want an amoral universe in which there is no retribution for the likes of Hitler. Consequently, we cry out for justice, but what we desperately need ourselves is mercy. Only that can keep us from being consumed by the fire of God's holiness. His wrath is neither an emotion nor an irritable fit of temper but it is the settled conviction of righteousness in action to destroy both sin and the sinner. The glory of the gospel is that we have an advocate who pleads for mercy on the ground of his own righteous action when he died the death that we deserved to die. You see, the advantage of propitiation is that it includes the idea of God's wrath turning away from sinners to the substitute whom he himself loved. God is not a pagan deity who has to be bribed to be gracious. He is a holy God who offered his very son to extend mercy to those who least deserve it. This is why we relish and rejoice in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross because the cross is the place where God has provided the means by which sinful people like you and I can be justly forgiven and welcomed into his presence. By his own merit, God himself merited our salvation. It was love that motivated him to do it. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, you all know it. But God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. One famous preacher that I love to read and, and listen to, his name is James Montgomery Boyce. This is what he said. Jesus is himself the propitiation. Then, and it is by virtue of his being this, that he can be our advocate. Our advocate does not plead our innocence. He acknowledges our guilt and presents his vicarious sacrifice as the ground of our acquittal. Moreover, in this lies the Christian's confidence. For it is not on the grounds of our merit, but solely on the basis of the finished work of Christ that we are bold to approach our Father's throne. This is why I said what I said to you at the beginning of the sermon, that God is never disappointed with you. You got to get this. This is the key that unlocks gospel freedom and the light yoke. We have a righteous Savior who stands in our place. 
and thus our status before God alone is by faith in Christ alone, which if you follow the logic results in God getting all the glory of alone, alone for the salvation that he alone has accomplished. Thus, after we sin, fall and mess up, the answer is not to try to do better. The answer is to boast in the cross and know that God has spoken by his word and says he is not disappointed. You have his infinite, unchanging, eternal love. What shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? You. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one or nothing. In all of these things, you and I are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Thus, I am sure, as Paul says, neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. You are loved. You are perfect. You hear that? You are perfect. You're declared clean. You are pardoned. You are justified. You are adopted. You are glorified, sanctified, blessed, cared for, protected, not abandoned, guiltless, set free. This is what you get eternally, never changing in the work of Jesus because of the love of God the Father. Amen. I'd like to finish our time in Point number three, and show you lastly from this text, our responsibility. So far we um, looked at the first two verses of this passage, moving quite slowly. We're going to speed up here. And I'd like to highlight two points for us in the last uh, few verses, verses three through six. And those two points are this. Number one, sanctification, the importance of it, the role of it. Number two, mission. Um, in these final verses, one of the key words that you'll see John repeat here to highlight this is the word keep. He says this, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. John here in this book has been writing to help the church examine their faith to see whether or not what they, uh, if their confession is actually authentic and true. And uh, from the last section of chapter 1 to here, he continues on with this idea of walking in the light as a result of keeping God's word. John says, keep his commands, keep his commands, keep his word. And God's grace in the scripture is the thing that fuels us and, able to, and, and, and have the ability to do this. And so now that you and I have Christ the advocate, a Savior who guarantees the love of the Father, John is saying, I want you to keep God's commands in his word. 
In other words, I want you, you are called to live a righteous life of love. According to the scriptures, for God and the world. Where did I get that from? Well, uh, this is the imperative that, uh, that flows out of the indicative it found in verse 2. Remember the verse? John said that Jesus didn't just die for our sins, but he died for the sins of the entire world. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that everyone is going to be saved. It, it means that Christ's propitiatory sacrifice, which has availed to wipe away our sin, is sufficient enough for all people. This is the universal scope of God's saving will that God the Father wishes that none would perish but that all would have eternal life in Christ. His love for the world. Similar words to the words of John the Baptist when Jesus was about to arrive on the scene to start his ministry. Remember what he said? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, cosmos. It means that this good news of salvation offered and applied to us in Christ is freely offered to everyone. And so I can't preach this text without mission because this is what John does here. He talks about the world. In John uh, chapter 13, Jesus says this, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then in chapter 14, he went on to say this, Christ, And if you love me, keep my commands. And if you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. What was the love and purpose and mission of Christ coming into the world? Salvation for the world. This is what you and I as Christians are called to. Mission. However, I just want to just point out something that's True, unfathomably true. This is also the, one of the main reasons why so many people have written off the Christian faith. Um, because many people say that they're Christians, say that they believe in God, Jesus, um, but their lives bear little to no evidence of Christ. Um, their confession is nothing more than a family tradition, a set of rules and a political agenda. I just want to let you know that um, Republican doesn't equal um, Christian in the same way that Democrat doesn't. Uh, going to church or praying before a meal, doing good things, they're all good things, but they're not the gospel. The gospel is a person, and that person is Christ. So how can Christians who say they know God and believe in him be not like him. It isn't possible. It's not possible to say that you know or believe in God and not be like God. What was Jesus like? Jesus was like a missionary servant who lived his life seeking out and saving the lost. I kind of just want to pause there for a second. Um, those who have um, hidden God's word deep in their heart are walking in the light of his love and mercy for the world to know him 
In other words, the direction in which our life is traveling and the way that we live along the way determines whether or not if our Christian profession is actually true. The loveless Christian does not know God and the missionless Christian doesn't understand the gospel. Listen, no one is perfect. No one is sinless. No one has fully arrived at this call and gospel here, but the one who trusts in Christ is growing in love and intimacy with him and the love for and the mission towards the world. Intimacy with God through his word. This is how we are preserved and grown in our faith. And as we enjoy fellowship and intimacy with God, hiding his word deep in our hearts, we begin to think and act and sound and be more like our Savior. And so I ask you as we close, is this gospel bearing fruit in your life? Do you love non-Christians? Is your life totally wrapped up and consumed by this mission? The church is like an airplane. There's only two wings. There's discipleship and mission. Uh, how much of those do you have part of you? Are you being discipled? Are you making disciples? And how many non-Christians do you love and serve intentionally, active in your life, so that the mission of Christ and the kingdom of God from heaven would bear to be true on this earth? Oh, may we, because of the salvation that we have received by faith, reach the lost, care for the needy, mingle with lowly sinners, while all together we get to enjoy the love of God the Father through the perfect work of his Son. He who began a good work in you promises to bring it to completion upon the day of Christ Jesus. I'll finish with this quote from John Newton. John said this, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am today. Praise God for the work of Jesus inside of us. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Send us out on mission. Thank you that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We have a righteous advocate. Thank you for your love. May this church be about discipleship and mission. And may we actually love people. Be with us, Lord. Thank you that you love us. We pray in your name. Amen.